I want to understand what was going on in your world that made you seek out a solution in the first place. That is like the most important question to ask. It's like, you know, solutions and products aside, what was going on in your life that actually motivated you to throw some money down into solving this problem? That gives you insight into what you should be talking about. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. You know, when you go to a party and you're introduced to someone and you don't know them very well yet, and the conversation inevitably turns to, what do you do? And the conversation usually goes one of two ways. Firstly, the person begins by talking about something that you don't really understand or begins to use words that you've just never really heard before. You nod in agreement, even though you're just totally lost. They then see that you're struggling, so they begin to try and explain details of the details to try to educate you about what it is they do. But that, that just makes it worse. And by the end of the five minutes of them just talking and talking and talking, you actually have no idea what they do. And, and frankly, you don't care. You've totally lost interest in this conversation. Alternatively, this conversation could go another way. In that second scenario, the person gives you an answer that's short and sweet that piques your interest. This begins the conversation and it starts to gain momentum. In the same five minutes, you now not only have suggested that you introduce them to someone you know who's in the same field, but you also are really enjoying their company and want to chat further. The deciding factor between these two interactions, brand messaging. My guest today has worked as a copywriter, a brand strategist, a graphic designer, an editor, and even a travel writer. So you know that she knows a thing or two about messaging. She's now the founder of Punchy. Joining me today live is Emma O'Brien. Thanks so much for joining me today, Emma. Wow, you really dug into uh, dug into the background there of my uh, varied past career. So that's really really fun to bring that up. <laughs> As a travel writer, were you doing? Were you traveling, or were you ghost writing for people who were doing the traveling? How does that work? Yeah, travel writing was actually kind of how I first got into getting paid for writing. And at the time, I was randomly living in a mansion in the jungle of Puerto Rico. Don't ask, but I was there. The job market was not great. So at the time, this was probably in 2005, I got a huge uh, Bible called The Writer's Market uh, looking for freelance gigs. And one was writing hotel reviews all around the world. So since I was in the Caribbean, I got in touch with them and I would travel around to different hotels and I would stay there and I would rate them and I would write about it in these articles. And I got to go all around Central and South America and Europe. It was pretty cool. I'm dating myself when I talk about this because I don't think travel... Travel blogs were kind of new. I actually contributed to one at the time. And I remember thinking, how is this business even going to work? Like, is this a viable thing? And then, of course, everything exploded. But yeah, you could say I'm an early adopter of uh, travel blogging. <laughs> one thing is always kind of, I've 
been interested about is when you're writing about like hotels as an example, like one hotel is not dissimilar than another one. And so you as the travel writer have to kind of bring some of its uniqueness to light and and differentiate it from the others because you could pretty much just say the same, write the same story for each one of them. I showed up, I checked in, I slept there, there was a pool, then I left, right? And so would you say that that kind of early early in your career, writing in the descriptive and really trying to, to understand what made that hotel unique kind of helped you to understand a bit about the business and how to position it? You know, kind of. So I could give you the highlights of sort of how I ended up being a specialist in messaging and positioning for B2B tech companies, which is a far cry from Caribbean hotels. But start with creative writing. I think I was born to be a writer. And so I did understand how to, you know, paint pictures with words and how to make people feel things or relate to certain thoughts or feelings or ideas through words. But I never really knew that a career (laughs) when I was younger. I thought, I guess I just have to be a novelist. And, you know, one tortured manuscript later, I kind of wrote that one off and I thought, well, what else could I do? And at the time, uh, I was living in the UK, and I fell into a job in consumer branding. And so I got a job as a strategist working for um, consumer packaged goods, so major global brands that you would see in retail and stores on the shelf, uh, Unilever, Colgate, big, big companies. And my job really was to create brand stories and position brands to make customers feel something. Because as you probably know, when it comes to you know, marketing and advertising consumer brands, it's a lot about how you make you know, customers feel and how they, how they feel when they think of the brand. There's a lot of emotion. While you'll often see ads that don't even have the product, right? It's got like this aspirational image. And I you know, really kind of learned those tricks of the trade in that in a very crowded marketplace on a shelf when you've got a bunch of products that are exactly the same, telling that story is a way to differentiate in a really big way. So I kind of learned how to do that in the consumer space. And when I moved back to uh, the US, I randomly got a job at a B2B marketing agency. And truth be told, I didn't really know what the difference B2B and consumer be. Like I figured it would basically, you know, be the same thing, just slightly different products. And one of my first clients was an enterprise technology company, uh, a publicly traded huge uh, data backup rate company. And I remember looking at the marketing and thinking, oh, no, I am in way over my head because I don't understand any of this. It's a wall of words. It's all features I don't understand. Do you need a PhD in like engineering to read this, this marketing? And as I kind of got to know the company and understood that the struggles that they had, I realized that they did struggle when they presented their brand how they told their story, that salespeople struggled telling that story, that marketing struggled. And so I applied some of those things I had learned with storytelling and consumer branding into the B2B space and found out that it worked. So that's kind of how you know I applied those storytelling principles to the tech space. Yeah, that's super important because in a lot of consumer goods, there's no difference. It's like, am I buying peanut butter A or am I buying peanut butter B? So it becomes a, a just a primitive reaction of, oh, this one made me feel good. I don't know why, but it did. 
And it goes back to some type of messaging, whether it was an ad or an email or a flyer that pulled on some emotional heartstring. I think it's like, you know, something like 91% uh, of the decision to buy is is emotional, rational. You know, we just we just like we feel good about the brand. I mean, case in point, one of my old clients was a toilet paper brand. I mean, the ultimate commodity, right? Toilet paper, <laughs> and yet there was a market leader, right? <laughs> is there a set number of emotions that we have, or are they blends of each other? You know, there. I will say there are lots of frameworks and archetypes that you can see in the branding space when you Google around to understand like these personas or these types of feelings. To be honest, I've never used those. It almost feels formulaic and forced to me. So I've never sort of, you know, pinpointed one of eight emotions or archetypes that I'm trying to kind of force a brand into. I think at the heart of it, is is really understanding your customer and their aspirations, who they want to be and who they aspire to become, no matter what you sell. I think as long as you can really understand and speak to that, that's what you, you're going to need to connect with uh, customers and build your brand. So it's more about understanding your specific customer and who they want to be and where they want to go. Yeah. Is it, does it work the same way to message of, about things they don't want to be just kind of a, just out of curiosity? Like you can, you can talk to them about, oh, you're going to be more, if you're more organized, you're going to be smarter because you can get to your, your files faster, but we don't want you to be, or like with this, with the opposite messaging say, like you don't want to be that person who's always looking for stuff before a, a meeting or something like that. Yeah. So that's interesting. You mentioned that. So that's one of my favorite uh, techniques, I would say, for messaging. And so these kind of like the messaging or speaking to the pain points generally are like supporting messages. I like kind of the big overall uh, message from a brand, positive and aspirational. But when it comes to those supporting messages, you're right. One of the most powerful things you can do to connect with customers through your messaging is to speak very specifically about problems, challenge, annoyances, things that are right in front of them that they care about. And even more importantly is to use the same words that they themselves use to talk about those problems. Because when you're able to kind of speak to those things, like, you know, we stop you from digging around in a pail for five minutes, right? Or losing yourself in a black hole, like switching through tabs. When you speak to those actual pains and in the way that your customers use it, when the customer is messaging, they're like, wow, they really get it. This company gets me, you know? And that naturally builds uh, trust and credibility in your company. So, And they naturally think maybe they can help me because they kind of get it. And so absolutely, Stuart, you know, always, if you can, some of those pains and use specific language that they use is a really great way to kind of connect with customers and show them that you have a solution that could help them. You mentioned having a, a big message and then supporting messages. Let's chat a little bit more about how you can understand, firstly, if your big message is wrong and is not working or you don't have one at all, how do you, how do you figure that out? The message on top, we'll call that the value proposition. And typically it's the homepage headline and subhead, just so we're, we're clear. The first thing you see on a website, 
well, this value proposition is kind of the most important message on your entire website because when people come, it's the thing that's going to tell them instantly, you're in the right place. This is what this company can offer you. And here's why you should stick around and read some more. So in terms of conversions, that value proposition is, is, is number one. And that's why you'll see companies cramming stuff up there. The sad thing is a lot of companies don't kind of put the effort into it and make it as strong as possible. So a lot of times you'll see statements up there or fluffy statements. So like a fluffy marketing statement that sounds kind of good, but says absolutely nothing at all. That is a real waste because it doesn't really communicate anything real and tangible to a prospect. And so you're missing that opportunity to help them see that you can help them. So I would say if your website, you know, isn't converting like you would like, um, if no one's ever kind of clicking that call to action up, you know, on the top of the fold, that's a sign that it's not working. If you're having sales conversations and you're saying, you know, your what your big value is and you're not getting a great response or it falls flat, that's a sign, you know, that it's not working. And if it's the same line that's plastered on all your competitors' homepage headline, also probably really working for you. So I think most companies have room to improve their big value proposition in my experience. What's, what would a, what would be some, some exercises you could go through to understand what the underlying value proposition is from your customer's point of view, rather than just, I hope that they appreciate this. Yeah. So my approach at least is absolutely based in customer research. So I am a firm, strong believer that if you're going to create messaging, you need to first start by speaking to your customers, understand their world, understand their problems, understand how your product fits into their world and the thing they value most. And then that gives you your guidance. So if everyone is kind of saying one thing, chances are that's your your big value proposition. And other things that you hear again and again, those will be your supporting messages. And the ones that are most common are higher up in the hierarchy. And the ones you know that are less talked about are lower down. But absolutely asking your customers you know, what do they value in the product? You know, why do they choose you over other solutions? And how has it changed their life or their day? When you ask those types of questions, you can start to see, you know, what, what they really value. And it's just important that it's what they value and not what you want them to value, as you kind of, uh, you know, said there, Stuart. So yeah, speaking to your customers is the fast track to understanding what that value statement is. Do you have a preferred method for actually speaking with them? Is it face-to-face or is it, is it more uh, written form? Yeah. So my favorite is phone conversations or, you know, on Zoom, 30 minutes, just real conversational, kind of like we're having now. And I have a bunch of questions that I definitely want to tick off, but I also let the conversation just flow. And I just like to understand before I even get to what do you think is so great about product X, I want to understand what was going on in your world that made you seek out a solution in the first place? That is like the most important question to ask. It's like, you know, solutions and products aside, what was going on in your life that actually motivated you to throw some money down into solving this problem? That gives you insight into what you should be talking about, right? So that's the number one thing I like to ask. And then supporting things like 
what was the most unexpected benefit that you got from using this product? That always gives really great answers. And how would you feel if I just took it away from you today and you couldn't have it again? That gets really interesting emotional responses. Um, but conversations are a great way to kind of dig into what customers really mean about the things they value. So this conversation would happen with existing customers, right? They understand what life was like before your product and now they understand what it's like after and they can kind of and so your value prop is the difference. Is that is that kind of what I'm picking up? Is the is life before, life after, and then that difference, the bigger the difference, the bigger the value prop. Yeah. So I I'm a there's different styles you can take with that big value proposition, but I do favor the big aspirational value. Like you said, the ultimate transformation. So yes, if you think about your customer before and after your product, what is that after state? You know, what is that vision? What is that nirvana, the promised land that you can take them to? And, you know, it can be in a B2B setting. It's not always going to be like, you know, make your life blissful or whatever, but you are solving something and making life easier. So yeah, can it be an aspirational headline about where they're going to be? And then I always like to underline it with a supporting subhead that just says very clearly what your thing is and who it's for, right? So just to kind of punctuate that aspirational statement, make sure you're clear about what the heck your thing is and what it does and for who so that people can think, okay, yeah, I'm in the right place. That's for me. Should that, should that second part of the, the subheader, so it's what it is and who it's for in the, who it's for part, are you describing them in their current state or them in their aspirational state? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. In their current state would be good. Speaking to their current position is a really good thing to do. Yeah, or even just kind of speaking to specifically to um, your audience, like if it's a big segment, maybe you you want to hone in a little bit on an attitude that they have or a mindset um, mm. to kind of make that that audience a little bit more specific. If you're trying to reach people with a certain psychographic um, point of view, that's another place where you can stick it in there too. Sometimes. I do recommend it. It also depends on the company and the product. If no one's heard of you, if you're creating something very innovative or new that people don't have a clear frame of reference, and that's where positioning comes in, then perhaps your headline shouldn't be so aspirational. And maybe it should just be very clear and say what this is and who it's for, just to give people like a, a mental context for what you're offering. So sometimes I recommend a more straightforward approach when, you know, it's something very innovative and new and you just want to help people understand like even kind of ballpark of, of what your solution is. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about using attitude as a way to qualify or disqualify people who, who start to learn about your, your company. Yeah. I love attitude. It's a core brand piece. Like the agency I used to work at, they talked about giving brands optic attitude and that that was your edge. So when we think about brands, you could target a segment like digital marketers, right? And there's tons of digital marketers out there. But if you really want to win with brand and have a strong, noticeable brand that's really sticky, you want to dig into digital marketers, certain type of attitude, and you bring that same attitude that they're really going to love. So it gets you out of generic land, 
right? You get to have a fun personality. You get to have, you know, have people feel something about you. And it really aligns with their point of view. So it's like, you don't want to be all things to all people. You want to really kind of appeal to a specific type of customer, a specific attitude, and you want to attract as strongly as you repel others. So when you have a strong attitude, strong point of view, yeah, you're going to weigh people who are not good fit customers. And that's good. It's going to save you time. It's going to endear you more to those best fit customers. So yeah, having an attitude as a brand, I think is a great thing. I think in the B2B space, people don't do it enough. Maybe some people think, oh, it's just a consumer thing. You know, we're B2B, you know, we're selling to enterprise and businesses. We got to wear a tie and we got to speak the jargon and be really, you know, buttoned up. But you'll see, See a lot of B2B companies, especially in the SaaS space, who have very cool consumer type brands with tons of attitude, and you know, they're doing great. So yes, if you can have an attitude, if you can appeal and speak to a customer who has a similar kind of attitude or view, you're going to create a uh, stronger connection with them as a brand. That's awesome. The, that, that moment of connection Say it is a B2B product and it requires a whole bunch of decision makers to to give the check mark to say like, yeah, we're gonna buy this. Say it's something super expensive and it requires a whole bunch of different different people's signature. I think people feel nervous about showing attitude in their marketing because you want to appease everyone at the at the decision making table. But I think what the 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 stronger case should be is you want to have the person who is your like champion just to throw out another kind of businessy word mm-hmm. you want your brand to uh, completely agree with the attitude of your champion because that champion is your salesperson like that's the pur- purpose of b2b marketing is to give that inside person as much ammunition as possible to help them to push it towards a sale. It's not like you're just trying to convince someone to put their credit card in for a $5 widget. It's like that person needs to push the agenda at meetings. They need to remind people to get their signatures. They need to do paperwork on top of their existing thing because you've convinced them so deep down that this is going to make their job so much better in the future. So the attitude almost works double time because you're you're fueling them to pursue it for a longer time than just kind of like a B2C direct direct buy. That's such a point, Stuart. I love that you brought that up because I was actually just having a conversation with a company that has both a B2C and a B2B offering. Um, a client of mine, they're B2C off, you know, they're very strong in that. And they're wanting to move more into enterprise, like many startups, but wonderful brand personality. It's playful at times and human, somewhat imperfect, right? Just real and down to earth. And as a business, they were kind of getting nervous about, well, we go, guys, do we need to tone this down? Right? It's like, oh, going enterprise, like turn down that personality. We're going enterprise. And I said, guys, you know, like the CEO isn't going to be like go pouring through all your marketing. That's not how it goes. We have these champions and all this brand love because of this personality. 
But I said, let me get you some data because I was doing a brand research for them as well. I said, let me get data. So I got on the phone with a bunch of enterprise uh, buyers and I asked them about the personality. And in fact, one of them from a huge enterprise said, I love how human they are, how fun, uh, refreshing. They're very down to earth. And so I was able to go back to them and say, people love your brand personality, even especially in the enterprise, because everything else is so dull. So actually, you know, great space to connect, have a bit of attitude, as long as you're not dinging your credibility in your solution right, by being like, yo, bro, like we're scalable, right? As long as you're being <laughs> pro, you know, professional and honest, <laughs> be fine. So yeah, good enterprise does not mean you have to go boring. I saw, I came across a very, first time I've seen it and it really struck me as why wouldn't you do this from here on out? But I don't know if you've ever heard of Gumroad. It's like a marketplace where creators can publish their their digital content, whether it's like a PDF recipe book or digital art or whatever it is. And so their kind of whole thing is we're reducing the friction so that creators can create and still make a living doing what they love. What they've done is they've published their entire brand book. Uh, and it's not just a lookbook. It's not like a, an illustration thing saying only use Arial bold 16 point. It's, it's like going into detail about here's on a scale, here's how robotic we want your answers to be or how whimsical we want your answers to be on a scale. Here's how um, friendly we are versus angry. And then they put all these scale bars of saying, here's what I want your tone of voice to be for every single external piece of messaging that goes out, whether it's a customer service email or it's like an actual ad. And then they did another cool thing that I really liked that I think anyone can really do is put well-known TV, movie, pop culture icons as examples of how you want your brand to be perceived. So it was like, if someone were to speak of our company as a person, they would describe them as, and in this case, it was Kermit the Frog. They're like friendly, enjoyable, but helpful and like a, a pal. And I thought that was just such a great way of, of putting it in public. And I just respect that brand so much more now because I've read it. Not everyone's going to read your brand guidebook, but as an internal tool, now every single person at the company knows how to reply to emails in, on brand. I, I love that. I've got two things to say about that. One, well, I'm a huge Kermit the, Fran Kermit the Frog <laughs> fan. I think he has such personality. Seriously, I know it, but he's just a great guy. A great guy. I love, I think that's a great tool that any brand, any can do is who is that spokesperson like, like Kermit the Frog. I think one of my biggest wins was working in, with a male-led sales technology company who agreed that Oprah Winfrey was their spokesperson. And I was like, oh yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and in terms of brand guidelines, yeah, that's really awesome when companies put it out there. There's a couple brands that I always kind of go back to who have incredible guidelines. I mean, MailChimp has insanely good brand guidelines, especially around writing um, and tone and you know what to do in different channels. Buffer's got some good stuff as well. Yeah, there's a lot of really great B2B brands out there right now. You know, Zendesk and Asana. I mean, there's just, 
the bar is definitely being raised and, mm -hmm. you know, more and more companies are being more human um, because let's face it, the market is just getting more and more crowded every day. I mean, it is getting commoditized. And so, you know, companies are having to kind of take brand really seriously because people just can't keep up with all the features and, and all that stuff. Let's talk through maybe less of a, a SaaS example. Say you've got like a very technical product and that is its selling point is it's, it's robust, it's meant for research, it's super detailed and you're selling to researchers who are detail oriented. Do you still want to include the emotion side of it as your front your front foot forward, like kind of appealing to the emotional side? Like, is there room for techno babble in there or how does it, and if so, how do you frame it so that it's, it's helping your cause, not confusing your, your customer? Yeah, I think, yes, if it were highly technical and if the audience was like engineers or highly technical crew, yeah, it probably wouldn't make sense to do, you know, humor or lightheartedness at all. You always want to write for your audience. So with a technical crew, it's okay to speak the jargon if that's the customer jargon. So when I say speak the customer's language, if there's jargon in there and technical features, absolutely use their language that they use. But the important thing is always to convey the value of everything and the benefits. And I think that's where it's very easy to just go off on a feature rampage, especially with a robust technical product and just go on and on about the features or assume that because your audience uh, is, is in your field that they automatically know what the inherent value of any given feature is. They don't. I think that's something that a lot of technical founders and, and, think they they put out this cool new feature and they assume everyone gets how awesome that feature is because they do so they built it and they're like duh and everyone else is like no you gotta you gotta help me out here you gotta connect the dots for people either they don't know or they're they don't have time to like bother trying to figure it out so you need to make it really easy you know at the top of a, of a product page the top of any page, there needs to be kind of like a clear value statement that kind of just helps people get, get what the value is. Like, then they're going to read. Then you can lead them on to technical features and specs. Absolutely. I'm not saying get rid of stuff. But as long as you let them understand, just make sure you're clear about the value and use the language that they use if it's a bit of jargon. You can like just because you're talking in technical terms doesn't mean you need to throw usability out the window. You can still have headlines saying ultra fast and then throw the specs underneath it because then you can then you're just helping them to read faster. Another thing that's great when another trick I kind of use when you're talking about value so is about getting specific. So when you say like do this faster, you know, like uh, I don't research faster. If you could put a number in there, like, you know, cut the time it takes you to do this in half or do X in five minutes or any kind of number, any kind of specificity that you can get in there on the value statement to help paint that picture in their mind and kind of uh, make it more specific than like a generic statement, like save time, save money, save this. That's a great way to kind of stop people in their tracks and help them see that value in a concrete way. So yeah, how can you get specific? How can you make it specific to their use case as well? 
There's a line on your website that really that that did that to me. It's kind of stuck out to me as my like, oh, I get it now. Was it was just one line. It said, "Tell the story your customers need to hear." I just thought that was so that was very interesting because it's not about you. It's not about your brand. It's not about your your accolades or anything. It's the story, and you use story on purpose there, I assume. Especially when we're marketers at a company or if we are founders ourselves and we sit down and think, okay, I'm going to do my messaging for my product. And you're just in that case where you're like, I got to tell the world about my product. And you're seeing everything from what I say, the inside out. So you're on the inside, you see all the wires and behind the scenes and you're, and you start explaining those things. And that's how you build your messaging. When really the point of messaging, it's meant to be for your prospects. It's not meant for you. It's meant for prospects. So it's got to go from the outside in. It's got to start with them and where they're at, they need, and then you can eventually lead them down the path to see all the wires behind the scenes and all the cool stuff. And I think it's really that mind shift that can be the hardest thing, the thing that's really tripping you up. But when you kind of think, okay, it's not about me. What do they need to hear about my product? When you kind of make that shift, things kind of come into focus and it gets a lot easier. And that naturally simplifies the messaging anyway, because they're not experts in, you know, the features and functionality. So it's a kind of a natural way to simplify your message and make it more effective. So say you've gone through and you've simplified everything and you've found out, you figured out ways to differentiate yourself, but it's just missing that one last thing. There's, there's one, one exercise that I found you explaining and it, ties the idea of having one too many drinks at a party with your brand messaging. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? <laughs> yes. My is drunk at the party exercise. I love running companies through when we do brand uh, workshops or messaging workshops. So here it is. Here's how it goes. You, it's after work and you're going to a cocktail party and it's an industry party. So all your competitors are there and all your customers and all your prospects. And it's like a mixer. You go straight after work and you forgot to have lunch, but you hit the bar and it's free drinks and you knock back a cocktail or two. You start to feel a little bit, you know, tipsy and you're having a good time, feeling a bit loose. So you start to go mingling and you're mingling around and there's little groups of people chatting. It's like prospects chat with your competitors and you're feeling a bit free and you blurt something out. What might you blurt out to your prospects? What might you blurt out to your competitors? Uh, what would you say and possibly regret in the morning? Now, this is such a fun exercise to do with teams because everyone laughs at first and you know they, they put some stuff out there that's like really bold statements. But then you kind of sit with those statements and realize like, no, I would back that statement even if I wasn't drunk. And so the whole idea of the exercise is really giving you permission to dig deep into your point of view and be a bit bolder with what you believe and, and why you think things should be a certain way. And that really ties into that deeper part of brands, that kind of internal, deeper piece that can be hard to articulate 
and hard to uncover when you've got all those business and marketing objectives on top. So when you can kind of give yourself space um, to do that exercise, I recommend you do it. You could even do it in real time. Like you could act a couple of drinks on an empty stomach and think about what you might say that might give you better answers or not. But uh, yeah, uh, see what comes out of it. You know, it could, it could work. <laughs> that's a that's an awesome activity. And you did say you did, you said a specific word there that that has come up before when we've talked about positioning, which is almost just like they're 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 in the same family as 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 messaging, but it's point of view. Like that is the differentiator is you're unapologetic about your point of view and it makes some people hate you and it makes some people love you, but that's why you're doing it because you're different. You're not better. You're not faster. You're not cheaper. You're different. And you attract people who want to be different with you. Absolutely. Yeah. It scares people, the thought of creating a brand that actively repels people as well as attracts them. And I think that's something that is, is scary to people. And so I just say again, like it is true. <laughs> and if you look at some of the most uh, popular brands out there, they've got, you know, following of certain type of people. And there are other people who just are not into that brand and, and they're doing just fine in their businesses. So yeah, it can feel counterintuitive, but it's absolutely like a core principle of, of branding. My last kind of uh, topic here before we wrap things up has to do with personal brands. So what we just kind of talked about is alienating or being uh, polarizing is scary enough when you're a company, but when you're a personal brand, that's like extra terrifying because it's, it almost feels like it's attached to you as a person and you're, you don't, no one really wants to be disliked even though you're turning your name into a company or a, or a brand or whatever, whatever it is, is the kind of the outcome you're looking for. Do you, do you have any ex- tips for, per, for personal branding? Does it, do a lot of the rules still apply? Like could, could these exercises be used or is it something that's more organic and you need to kind of try out? Yeah, I would. So I'm, I'm not a personal brand ex, but I understand, you know, I, have opinions about it. For me, it is more organic. I believe personal brand, if you want to have an authentic one that you you feel good about, it does have to come from within. And it's all about showing up. So for some, you know, there are formulas, like people say like, oh, you, you have to be polarizing, right? You know, when you have haters, you know, you've made it and then things like that. I, I don't love those. Um, I don't find those pointers helpful. It really is more about showing up and really putting your message out there, whatever message is. And is an intuitive thing. I think it, it's things that you're passionate about. It's the things that you could talk about, you know, all day, all night. And in terms of polarizing, it's not trying to polarize, but owning your point of view, owning your opinions, sharing them. And knowing that there are other people that want to hear it, that need to hear that view, and just putting it out there. So it is more organic. You can absolutely do the drunk at the party and extras kind of get at the heart of it. But to really just think about like, you know, what is my mission and what am I here to, to teach or to put out there? And it's something you feel into 
but it definitely takes some evidence and bravery because yeah, the bigger you get, there will be haters and it probably will feel personal. So, but I think, you know, we do need more people just being as authentic as possible and kind of putting their unique brilliance out there into the world. Very well said. Own your point of view. That's the moral of the story. Have a few drinks on an empty stomach and (laughs) own your point of view. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me, Emma. That was awesome. And uh, tons of great takeaways there. You can find out more about Emma and Punchy at punchy.co is their website. And you'll just actually just go check out their website as an example of terrific messaging because it's that's all they do. So go check it out and say hi to Emma as well. She's uh, always putting out good stuff on LinkedIn. Thank you, Stuart. It's so fun talking with you today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Cheers. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, then you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to topofmind.substack.com and put in your email, you can get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content inspired by this show. So there's going to be candid audio recordings that aren't going to be available anywhere else, not on Spotify, not on Apple, nowhere else except on topofmind.substack.com. But that's not it. It's also a platform where I can share written content, videos, links, and anything else that I come across directly with you. You're going to get access to it right away. You're going to get access to the whole library of archived posts. And you're also going to be the first to be notified when a new episode of Top of Mind comes out. So head on over to topofmind.substack.com. See you there. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.